Welcome back to the Tycoon Podcast. I have both Chris's with me. Hello. Hi. And we are finally here to uh, talk about Gogesk again. I say finally because uh, our landlord came by last week when we were supposed to record. And uh, he's trying to fix the garbage. Yeah, the garbage. But uh, anyway. As long as it got fixed and your sink isn't leaking anymore. It did. It got fixed yesterday. Oh. <laughs> yesterday. Okay, that's not a week ago. <laughs> yeah, you was expecting it a week ago. Um, anyway, here now. No interruptions. The internet works. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what else could go wrong, but it's not going to go wrong. Uh, and we're here to talk about Akira Kurosawa, his first color movie, and uh, his first movie without, or in a long time, without uh, either Takashi Shimura or uh, Toshiro Mifune. So, Chris, go desk again. What is it about? Ooh. Well, I'll say I'll save some deep dive context for later. But Dodeskaden, the film itself, um, is Kurosawa's third adaptation from the author Yamamoto Shigeru. Uh, the previous two being Sanjiro, which was modified to be a Yojimbo sequel, and Redbeard, which we talked about last time. Uh, the novel that uh, Dodeskaden was based off of is eluding my quick search real quick because uh, Wikipedia just says based on a book. But <laughs> the book was a series of short stories, and that's the best way to, to describe Dodeskaden. So to start off, the title of the film is a false onomatopoeia. Um, in, in Japan, they have awesome onomatopoeias that actually sound really cool um like don and stuff like that whereas we have dumb things like bang uh, <laughs> um Den is a onomatopoeia created by the first character we meet in this film whose name is uh rikachan or rokuchan i can't remember rokuchan and he is a child with autism who lives in a shanty town. A shanty town, for those who aren't aware, is basically a garbage town. Uh, this this town is literally built in a garbage rubbish heap, where the the houses are put up by shitty sheet metal or whatever was lying around that they could just throw together houses so that they could have shelter. These are the the poorest of the poor. And Roku-chan has autism, uh, best that I can discern. It's not uh, dived into, aside from he has some kind of mental challenge. But Roku-chan is obsessed with trolleys. He is a train freak, um, as he is horribly mocked by some children early on in the film. And so what he does is he spends his whole day, he goes out and he oils up and inspects his trolley, gets in the trolley and does his runs. Um, it's an imaginary trolley. It's just him um, sitting there like he's positioned and running across the town on very uh, pre-designed tracks, if you will. And instead of doing the traditional Japanese onomatopoeia for what a train sounds like, gatun, 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 he made up his own, which is dodeskaden, dodeskaden, dodeskaden. So while he is run, running with his trolley, he's just constantly uh, saying dodeskaden um, to the speed of the trolley. So it, it's kind of amusing. You know, it starts up dodeskaden, dodeskaden. And then when, when he's in full throttle, he's just dodeskaden, dodeskaden, dodeskaden. Um, one of the great things with the film is it actually adds sound effects as if it was a real trolley. So it kind of really immerses you into this child's imaginary 
um, imaginary scenario. And he leaves his home and goes on his run into the main shantytown village where we meet almost everybody um, that lives in this shantytown. There's a, a whole host of characters, and the entire film is basically one giant soap opera where we are bouncing around between various stories involving each of these different characters that live in the town. They don't interweave. They don't link up to one big giant story um, that culminates in this big grand scheme or anything. You are just experiencing the various lives and scenarios of these extraordinarily poor uh, people that live in the shantytown. You have uh, a woman who is the niece of an uncle who is lazy, who does nothing but drink and sleep and rape her. Uh, it's horrible. Um, and so she gets by by making flowers, uh, fake flowers, to sell in the main city. We meet a old man who is just super kindly. He's kind of like the wise old sage. People go to him for, for help. Uh, the main scenario with him, he gets robbed, and he wakes up in the middle of the robbery and tells the guy, please don't take those. Those are my tools. That's how I make my work. Here's my wallet. Have a whole shitload of money. If you need any more money, come back. I'll give it to you. But just don't take my tools. There's the these two drunk friends who are workers. They work together most of the time, I assume, as day laborers. They are color-coded yellow and red. They also fuck each other's wives and get extraordinarily drunk. Um, it's hilarious to me in one way because the yellow guy's wife has this shirt that basically has lines drawn that narrow down like a topography map to her boobs. But because of the yellow scheme, all I think of is uh, Ursa Yatsura. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but that's all I could think of. Uh, you have this this old man who is just called the beggar with a child who lives inside of a dilapidated car. And there's a sake delivery boy, uh, this guy who is played by legendary Japanese comedian uh, Junzaburo Ban, who plays a man who looks like he actually has a pretty good job, uh, but there, there he's still on the upslope. He has very unusual uh, nervous tics, body tics, and a, and a limp. And we just get to hang out with these characters for two hours and 20 minutes until Roku-chan brings his imaginary trolley back home, docks it, and says, well, I sure hope the uh, maintenance crew gets this shit fixed by the morning. I'm going to have to have a talk with them. And he, he goes to sleep. That is Dodeskaden. It's a very interesting it's a very interesting little film that's very, very different from all of Kurosawa's previous work. Um, I think the best scenario, or the, the best film that is closest to this is The Lower Depths, where you just are hanging out with these really poor people that ha the lower depths has more incident in it than Dodeskaden, but it's that same kind of free flowing. We're just hanging out with these various people, uh, scenarios. Yeah. Um, other girls, have you seen the lower depths? Have you watched this before? And what did you think of this in that order? Um, I actually have not seen the lower depths. Um, so I don't have, I don't have that as a frame of reference to compare to, um, as for Dodeskaden, um, so yeah, it's it's like these just these short stories all kind of spliced together. I felt at the very start it was jumping around a lot, and I was kind of having trouble keeping track of who everybody was, like you know, and then kind of realizing after 
45 minutes, oh, they're not really going to interact with each other. This is These are just kind of a lot of isolated stories. If you want to envision it, it's told through the eyes of the trolley conductor, like he's driving past this house. This is what's going on in that house right now. Not, you know, explicitly shown that way, but if you think of it as that perspective, I think it kind of brings the movie a little tighter together. Um, each you know, each of these little short stories, you know, they, they're all pretty interesting. Some a lot more, I think, gripping than others. Um, I really, and it, and it ends tragically, but the story of the, the, the man and the boy who, who live in the car, the boy goes, gets the food for them. Um, just, I thought, and they're like, he's just envisioning and imagining this beautiful house he's going to build that is like so beyond anything they could ever possibly have. Um, and it really kind of, it's just, it's like, it's like that's the hope that's keeping him alive almost something that's clearly impossible to happen um i i thought that was really really gripping um it felt almost familiar um some of them are a little more silly like the guys who the the, the guys who trade their wives um and then um and then there, there there's also these these women they all are basically sitting out by the water source in the middle of the shanty town uh, they're most. It's basically that's what they do. They they're there. They talk. They get water. They they do their laundry with the water. Um, they gossip. Um, I thought they were really engaging characters because they kind of worked to to give you a little more exposition about some of the characters in the town that you wouldn't have gotten just through seeing the short stories. Um, and so as the movie goes on, it really has built up a lot of these characters, which. Yeah, and again, they have a lot. Of, most of them have some really interesting um, stories to them. I'd say one thing that doesn't—it's just not held together. There's 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 a hole in the middle from just like one like really lead performance that brings everything together in a way that um, makes the movie feel a little more complete. Um, I felt like I was watching at times almost an, an incomplete movie. Um, really good ideas, and it's really well shot. I mean, Kurosawa made the, the jump to color pretty seamlessly. He 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 employed he employed color really well. He didn't. I mean, you know, we, we've probably talked about this before. If not, um, I've talked about it with other people. When a lot of black and white directors made the leap to color, they they couldn't get it quite right because they're used to using colors that really contrast in black and white, and then you film that in color, and a lot of times it looks really garish. Um, but you know he used colors that looked you know they looked naturally occurring they weren't done to set off different characters um and differentiate them because you know instead of needing to use like yellow and blue you can use yellow and orange and they look a lot different whereas yellow and orange on a black and white tend to look really close together um depending you know on, on the shade of the orange or the shade of the yellow but um they look a lot more similar so there's not as much differentiation so black and white you're you're a lot of times filming like in like really distinct different colors to to make them um stand out um you just don't have that in this movie whereas you get again a lot of black and white directors kept with that sometimes when they made the leap to color um you have a lot of the really beautiful um ways that kurosawa just lets you into the lives of these characters that you just wouldn't care about wouldn't think about and he makes you care about and think about them just without any additional conflict um that happens in a lot of his movies but all those movies also have this overarching conflict that this movie is lacking it's just a day in the life 
a series of vignettes um, that I think made the movie suffer a little because it's just not held as tightly together. Yeah, that's what I felt uh, as well. Uh, obviously, all the technicals were were great. From Kurosawa, Chris and I have already watched Dursu Uzula and already felt that way from that movie. Uh, and we've all already watched Margayo, um, his last movie. But uh, seeing this, maybe the uh, the time off between Redbeard and Gilgaskagan, which was uh, for Kurosawa a significant amount of time, right? Oh yeah, it's the longest period of time that he ever went without a film. Okay, yeah. Um, maybe that time allowed him to kind of research what he needed to do to make that jump, or maybe he is just that great of a, an actor that he was able to do it without uh, even thinking about it. But, uh, yeah, the the disjointedness, the idea that it is uh, stuff that the conductor is watching is a great framing. Um, and I, I'm sure that's what Kurosawa and Tang did, but the, just the, um, the presentation of it, where that is not exactly explicit, and you just see all of these people, I was uh, not really confused about what was going on, but like wondering whether they would interact ever. And yeah, it took me, uh, you know, 45 minutes, an hour into the movie before it was like, oh, this is just a series of vignettes. They are not going to interact at all. But each of these individual stories are uh, very interesting, very good, uh, typical, uh, typical great Kurosawa writing. Um, uh, atypical in that it involved uh, more than one woman doing anything. I yeah I there this had like as many women with significant roles and dialogues as you could get in like many of his mo- like m- most of his movies prior to this combined. Like in fact I think there were more women with dialogue and and like actual like significant characters in the movie than men, which is very much not the case for nearly all his films before this. Mm-hmm. And, and he doesn't judge. Um, so he has uh, one woman who has like six or seven kids, and they're all by different fathers. She just sleeps around with everybody. Uh, she's even pregnant with another one. And the the guy that she's married to, he doesn't hold anything against her. He just lives his happy life, takes care of the kids, and there's no judgment against her, um, even though there is a scene where all the other fathers are razzing her, trying to you just being cruel, um, and then the the women that hang out around the single faucet, the single water source in the shanty town. There's this uh, really great scene where this really uh, young looking woman, she's all like, "Yeah, gotta fuck all the dudes because that's what it's all about." You know what I'm talking about, ladies. Um, and it's not, it, it's 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 really a very positive and progressive leap. Not that saying that Kurosawa is ever a negative towards women really before but because his films have been so centric on men and masculinity previously with women really really put into the background it's it's really interesting to to see him put it all up front in such grand and wonderful fashion Mm -hmm. yeah and because they're so men centric a lot of the women roles are just relegated to these uh either the partners or the wives of men so you don't really get much like the ones that i do remember um where women get significant roles something like ikiru where the the woman is like really propping up shimura's character or something like uh weirdly the most beautiful where all the men have gone off to war and the women are just stuck uh not stuck but you know they are working uh the factories and such the jobs that men would typically do during that time Mm-hmm. 
And, and going off of uh, what you guys were talking about, uh, his his leap to color. So on the Criterion DVD, yes, I, I have the DVD for this. Uh, <laughs> I had never watched it until now. It was one of the. It was in the last like couple of years before they switched to Blu-ray. Um, so there's a one of those documentaries that's on a lot of the Criterion releases of Kurosawa's film. The that this crazy thing that they did, the Kurosawa Life in Cinema documentary from Japan. They include the segment all about Dodeskaden in here. So I can I, I finally have all the answers that we were speculating on about the five year gap I can talk about later. But specifically regarding his uh, leap to color, the reason Kurosawa put off going to color for so long was because he knew exactly what he wanted uh, his color film to look like. And he never thought that the color film stock that was available would do justice. He didn't like the way that Technicolor really looked. He didn't like the garishness or just the maybe muted tones of some of the film stocks that were being produced. So he kept being put off and put off and put off. And his cinematographer on this film is the one who finally convinced him to use color. And he did that by showing him uh, Sergei Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible Part 2, these are silent films from Russia that like each movie is like three hours long. I haven't watched them myself, but uh, in Ivan the Terrible Part Two, it's still a black and white film. But there is one color sequence in it where everybody is dancing. I haven't researched Eisenstein's film to see how he did that because it is a silent film. So I don't think they actually had color stock. Maybe he he individually hand painted cells like uh, Georges Méliès used to do back in the 1800s. I don't know, but the colors used in that dancing scene are so expressionist. They, they carry that painterly quality. They're, they're very expressionist and Kurosawa himself was a painter. So him seeing that sequence and how beautiful it looked and that it didn't have to be traditional, you know, Oh, color film stock. This is what the colors look like. And, that that's what was holding him back. It's like he can be expressionist with it. And that's how he approached Odeskaden. If you notice, um, almost all the landscape backgrounds don't look very real. That's because they're, they're all painted. They're, they were hand-painted uh, by Kurosawa and his, his production crew. And so he was able to create false lights, false colors to really – blend better with the scenery that he was incorporating. So the, the the colors of the roses and flowers that the girl makes, the color of the two drunk friends, all contrasted with this expressionist, super stylized color palette that he was going for. And that's why I think it blends so well. The best sequence in the film that using using color was it was when the boy of the beggar he, it's not when he dies um, at the very end, but a little bit earlier when he gets really, really sick and the beggar goes to the uh, cabal of women around the water source and they're trying to tell him, you know, take him to the doctor, but he's a proud asshole and stuff like that. There's really gorgeous hues of blue and purple in there with uh, because of that fake background and sunset and it just bleeds into everything so wonderfully 
Um, that's that, I think that's why that's why his this this leap into color went so well for him was because he didn't go to color because he didn't trust it. He only made the leap when he found an influence that allowed that that showed him that he can control how it looks. He can put his expressionistic or impressionistic qualities as a painter into the film directly that there is a way for him to make the color be what he wanted because that was that's why he was so hesitant that's that's why this is so successful he didn't just switch to from black and white to color film stock and keep making films the way that he always did which is the pitfall that chris was talking about he really went into it with forethought about how to make it look how he wanted it sounds like the meticulousness of Kurosawa that I know. Sounds like sounds like sounds very familiar from other Kurosawa stories. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly enough, this film was only made in less. This, this film was less than a, made in less than a month, which I, I I think this was the shortest film shoot of any film that Kurosawa had made since maybe the uh, the war days. He he his meticulousness and perfectionist nature really. Uh, prolonged his shoots and this was just wham bam in a month and there's a reason for that i'll wait until a better time to go into that all right well did we want to uh delve into any of these particular stories uh something like the the gogeska guy and keg doesn't have much substance but uh basically everybody else around him does um including this tragedy of uh well i mean everybody but like especially the child who who dies in the end because he had eaten some uh, food that had gone bad. Uh, I believe he was given the food by uh, a sushi chef who was going to throw it out, but he said, cook it before you go. And the gag said, no, it's fine. And then they eat it. And, uh, and uh, it's not good. Yep, that, no, that's exactly what happened. It was spoiled fish that w- had to go, so the, food, the sushi sh- chef told him, cook that shit first because it's not, it's not going to be very good. And the dad, thinking he knew everything, foolish, idiotic fathers around the world unite, um, told him, no, sushi fish, you just eat that shit. We're good. And it killed him. Horrible. Yeah. Uh, One thing about that story that I think is really interesting is how uh, Kurosawa shows the illness in both the father and the son by painting their faces um, increasingly greenish blue. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you guys really really saw yeah. that. Yeah. As, as time goes on, they it, it, at so I fell asleep the first time when I was watching this yesterday. I just <laughs> like 40, 45 minutes into it, I was just boom out, and I woke up in the last fifteen minutes, and so then I restarted the film and watched it. I just I'm really I'm really a sleepy, tired person. So mm-hmm. once I got my nap, I was good to go, and I watched the whole thing without any issue. Um, but when I woke up. I just thought that he was dirty looking because I, I didn't I missed the whole story. So I didn't know the kid was sick. I was like, wow, why why'd that fucking kid die? That's crazy. Um, but I just thought he looked super mega dirty, which is understandable because everybody in the film looks super fucking dirty because they don't have running water. They don't really, you know, take baths. Um, a couple of the characters do. But, you know, it's a concerted effort. Um, the the two dudes who who swap wives and get drunk they're very dirty looking so i was like man this dude is nasty nasty looking and then when i rewatched it i saw oh well he doesn't look that bad he looks like normal dirty <laughs> so there was like oh oh they got they got sick oh that that's that's anime sick face they got going on there <laughs> 
Um, trying to think of other individual stories. I really liked the the guy who who woke up to the burglar and was just like, "Don't take the tools, take the money, and come back if you need money again." And then like <laughs> later in the movie, the got the police come with the guy and they're like, "The man has confessed to robbing you," and the the old man's like, "I don't remember this guy." <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> What's this guy talking about? <laughs> you gave me money. It's like I, you must be mistaken. Yeah, it, it definitely didn't happen. I mean, like what a what a sweet man. Like, um, and then there's also I also really like the one guy who um, he's like, okay, I'll take this uh, this potion that'll kill me in an hour. This poison that'll kill me oh, in an hour. Yeah, yeah. And then like two minutes later, like the the guy who gave it to him was just talking to him about you know life and 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 you know, really kind of philosophical stuff. And the guy's like, wait a minute, I need to get this poison out of my body. It's like, should have talked to him before, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, it, 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 it gets, from that speech. Yeah. And it gets ridiculous because the, the old man, uh, the doctor, he plays into it. It's like, well, yeah, there's an antidote. Let me find it. And he's pittering around trying to find it. And the dude freaks out and basically accosts him and knocks the dude down. So the doctor's laying on the ground. He's like, dipshit, I gave you a fucking digestive. You're fine. You're not dying. <laughs> you didn't have to beat my ass. I was just trying to teach you a lesson. Yeah. I think that goes into a lot of uh, the themes in Kurosawa's movies where he's just like, the value of life is so high. Especially in something like Regbeard where he beats all of these fuckers up and then he's like, take care of these people. Who did this? I think thematically... High and Low, Redbeard, and Didescadent kind of tie together with like the types of the type of world they're really it, he's really kind of zeroing in on, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think they show different perspectives of it. But um, this is like the really raw form of it, where you only see the people like the people at the very like living in the shanty towns at the very bottom, what their life is like. Um, whereas High and Low and and Redbeard both both show different elements of that but presented it differently um i think high and low and redbeard both kind of show the importance of someone who's in a you know really stable financial situation has a lot that they can just rest and feel comfortable with realizing you know there's better there's much better things in life than just accumulating all this wealth and or accumulating all this prestige mm-hmm. um and Dedeskaden is it's you know these people it, they're incredibly poor they live in a landfill and it's like very explicit that people just dump their trash all around their home um and like they are you know in, just they are living lives that have a lot of meaning to them and they're they're you know they're they're, they're struggling to survive and obviously you have different types of people within that you have the, the really shitty uncle you have the wife who constantly just gets pregnant from other men and, like, her totally just – that guy is just a wonderful person. He loves those kids so much. He doesn't care who their biological father is. He even gives that really nice speech where he basically describes what fatherhood is, and it's like if you think someone is your father, then they're your father, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. yeah, like, I thought they're that the, was – The difference between a father and a dad. Yes, father. Anyone, anyone can be a father. It takes someone special to be a dad. Yes, exactly. Um, I thought I thought that was really touching. I think especially kind of just going into and, and it's not it's like and so many societies and throughout even through the sixties there was a lot of um, revolt against that. Sixty eight in Japan is like extremely poignant for for um, unrest, but 
I mean, you still there's still like just such a real by in 1970 a real support for that traditional family perspective that your father has to be your dad and then Kurosawa has his character basically tell you nope that's not true <laughs> don't let anybody tell you that's true your dad is the person who is your dad but yes anybody can yeah it takes a special person to be a dad um and I got I got carried away on that one, but yeah, I really I just really like that line of dialogue because it's just Ooh. felt. And I mean, twenty in two thousand twenty, that line is powerful. In nineteen seventy, I can only imagine how powerful that line must have been to say. Mm. It, radical even in nineteen seventy uh, because that was very much no. You, your father is your father is your father. It's yeah. it, mm-hmm. it is what it is. Like that must have been a, a radical thought to express in a in a film. You know, thinking back on all the different like I actually. I actually don't know if I have a favorite uh, story that runs through uh, the th- in this film. Like I, I really enjoyed each of them, um, but I think it's the one that really helped me find a coalescing thread because I think there is a big strong thread that com- that joins all these stories together. And I think the one the story that really drove that home for me was the story of Shima, uh, played by Junzaburo Bond, the the man with the nervous tick that is played as a slapstick and the and the limp he comes home from work and he brings three of his buddies from the city to his his little shanty house and when we first met him earlier in the movie everyone's like man he's such a sweet man his wife is such a bitch and when he brings uh, his co-workers home he's like hey you know and he's just being super nice and his wife is just mean as hell it's like i can't get the fire lit i don't know why i'm doing this shit for you with these strangers coming in and she comes out and he's like i want you to meet these people they're like hi and she's like fuck you i'm leaving and one of the the co-workers says he just can't take it anymore and he breaks japanese etiquette and speaks his mind and says, you're such a wonderful person, Shima-san. You're such a good person. Why don't you get rid of her? Why do you put up with her? She's the fucking worst. And some of the stuff that he says leans into the the misogynistic, you know, this is a role of a woman, because the way he says it, it's like, this is not how a wife should behave. But really, at the core of it, it's like, she's fucking mean to you and everybody. Like, you deserve someone better than that. And he tries to let it slide and just plays kind and nice. And then all of a sudden you see this dude who has a limp, can't walk properly, has this very, this nervous tick that literally paralyzes him for a few seconds, just leap on this dude and start like trying to beat the shit out of him. And he starts yelling at him. You have no right to, to talk about my wife that way. Cause you don't understand the, the, first thing about anything you don't understand what i've put her through what she has put up with because of me and my um disabilities my my, his, my handicaps you know the this story that i told you that you didn't really think was super funny that is real life my wife did that for me how fucking dare you and i felt that that was such a great great scene for many reasons one uh Junzaburo Bond does a really terrific performance. It's an interesting scene. It's all one take, one shot, one camera angle. Um, and it's it's a very beautiful and powerful message. But at the same time, you see 
that the whole film really is about the juxtaposition of relationships. So here is here is this man who has this this seemingly horrible wife, but you don't know his stance. How fucking dare you? Um, and there, there's there's a real love with them there. Then you have the uncle who rapes the daughter. You have the the wives that don't really care about their husbands, but they secretly do love them. But they 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 are coy with each other and they sleep with each other. Um, you have the husband whose wife endlessly cheats on him, and he only he he chose to focus on the kids. Uh, you have the beggar who doesn't have a relation, and so he's just this deteriorating person who is filled with delusions of grandeur there's and he treats his son with neglect and ultimately death because of it um what are some of in uh, i'm forgetting some of the other characters some of the other stories that are in here but they're all really juxtaposed against each other you have one relationship that is depicted this way and then somewhere else in the film there's another relationship that's identical that is flipped and so you get these pairs of relationships that are identical but flipped that really give you a huge breadth of perspective on on relationships and how we live through them and how we could choose to live through them for good and for bad. He doesn't say if one is right or one is wrong. It's just a very blanket viewpoint. It's just, let me show you these different relationships. And that's what I thought was really interesting, and it kind of ties back into uh, Roku-chan and his imaginary trolley, his relationship with the town. Um, that's just something that really stood out to me. That's a good perspective. Yeah, there's like just all the different. It is. It is all. Everybody in the film has a relationship with you know at, at least one other person in the film. Um, this I, I can't. And so yeah, and and they are they are definitely each relationship is different. Um, they all have different um, different. You know, you'll you'll perceive them differently. There's definitely some relationships where I thought you know they were bad relationships. At least one of the people in them was terrible. Then you just have these really charming relationships. The mother and of the, the trolley driver, she supports him going out. People spray paint her or put graffiti on her house being like, this guy's a fool, he's an idiot, trolley freak. And she's like, I'm going to wash this all off today so that he doesn't come home to see it. Yeah, one of the interesting things about the, the final segment um, when he goes back home is the mother, you see her very rapidly closing up shop and doing all these little... Uh, ritual things uh she you gotta hurry up and light the the candle for the buddha thing and, and gotta set up this way i have to be sitting here when he comes home uh, which plays into the idea that rokuchan is, is potentially autistic and so she understands what he needs uh when he comes home for things to be normal and so that he doesn't have um i can't remember the the correct phrase so forgive me but essentially an autistic meltdown so she 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 goes through pains to get everything set up when she hears him coming home um so that the house is good for him and and he is happy because that's what matters to her um, that's actually like a subtle and great way to depict that because uh like as you say they're never explicit they probably don't even know or they may, might not even know the uh condition that they are trying to depict here but they uh, go to a lot of work to just uh, accommodate that and let him live 
um, a life where he is happy, and that is in such stark contrast to something like uh, With the Light, which is a manga about uh, actual autistic people who go through, like, hell just because their parents want them to be quote-unquote normal. Um, mm-hmm. But this one, uh, the mom is doing everything that, that she can, and, like, my my thought was that the the Boogie's altar was for uh, a father that passed away or something, and they uh, they don't have that that support beam anymore. So it's, it's just them, and he is so clearly in love with trains because he has all of these. They have all the drawings of his trains, uh, his drawings of trains on the walls. Um, so like he's just allowed to uh, you know live his life, be happy. Um, as you say in the lower depths podcast, like these people. Uh, a lot of these people don't have money for rinks, but they have money for uh, a drink or just to hang out or to to do whatever to have this um, minor thing that will give them some semblance of joy for uh, however fleeting it might be, and uh, that's just how they have to live their life in this squalor, and that's that's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not okay because they have to live there at all, but you know, it's okay for them to to have <laughs> happiness. <laughs> Everybody deserves happiness. Everybody deserves that. So now that we're done talking about the film, I just I'm thrilled to finally find out what happened in these five years. Um, this was all told in uh, the documentary that was on the Criterion DVD. Um, I hadn't heard any of this, and reading uh, like Kurosawa's Wikipedia, I don't think I ever saw it even mentioned in passing. So the reason why it took him five years uh, between Redbeard and Dodeskaden is a series of horrible things that happened that can easily be summed up with fuck Hollywood. Um, so after, <laughs> after, after Redbeard, he was working on a, there, there was going to be his first color film called the runaway train. Uh, no relation to what ended up being Dodeskaden, by the way. And he worked so diligently in, in Kurosawa's perfectionist fashion. He spent a year developing the script and storyboards and all this other stuff and at the last minute the he was working with an american company they were they were providing financing and they said you know what nah so the 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 funding just basically fell through so he lost almost two years after after redbeard working on this film that just never ever materialized but the killer um and this is what helped helped me bring in a lot of context about his suicide attempt was he was then approached he was the original person who was supposed to direct the japanese portions of tora 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 uh tora 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 was a really really popular uh blockbuster style film uh from the late 60s early 70s that uh was about it was a dramatization about the attack on Pearl Harbor. I've never seen it, so I don't know how this being an American film, it's not racist as fuck. Um, but if Kurosawa was was going to to direct it, there has to be something else to the story. I don't I don't exactly know. But Kurosawa spent another two years working on Tora Tora Tora, uh, building sets, uh, re- replicas of old battleships, and he was so focused on pre-production getting everything set up and getting everything perfect he ended up only shooting like a week of footage and being kurosawa he didn't get a whole lot of footage shot in a week 
So the, the everybody thought that he had basically gone crazy, that he was having a nervous meltdown with his previous film being uh, scuttled, scuttered underneath him and then oh he can't deal with the pressures of a real hollywood movie because americans are so much fucking better at everything um so the studio fired him like they straight up fired his ass he didn't quit or anything they said you must be losing it you're not that great goodbye and that basically ruined him emotionally um and probably uh financially he was just like what the fuck um and so one of his producer friends told him, you know, basically you need to make a movie and you need to make a movie now because you haven't been in front of behind the camera essentially for four years. And if you if you don't make a movie, it's going to you're not going to make a movie. So that's why Dodeskaden was made in a month. Uh, it was made very quickly because he just needed to get behind the camera and he made a movie he was there's all these stories in the documentary from the people that work with him about how much life there was when he called action on the first first day of uh actual shooting there they say that you could hear uh tears and, and emotion in his voice when he called action and that, that just put everybody in the best of moods this the the entire crew and cast they were very warm and loving and they were they were they were a bit scared about kurosawa because of his reputation as a perfectionist and all this other stuff but when he called action they knew that they they were in right in good hands and it was a very great shoot it was 28 days of fun and when everything was over kurosawa basically said you know i'm going to miss these characters it was a very sad day for him so he had four years of turmoil and dealing with american studios fucking him over and really screwing with what he who he thought he was as a person then he had he made this wonderful little film and when the film opened in japan it was a critical and commercial failure it just utterly bombed um mixed reviews very poor reviews all kinds of stuff and that's that's it was the that was the straw that broke the camel's back that led to his uh suicide attempt the following year um since we recorded the durzu uzala uh podcast like two years ago um <laughs> i don't remember what i had said or what i had researched about the time between dodeskaden and durzu uzala but it sounds like he just needed a break. The, the five years between Redbeard and this film were due to Hollywood shenanigans, and the five years between this and Durzu Osala was basically him trying to get back to being a human being. That he the, the, these five years broke him so severely, and it's it, it upset me because like who who the fuck watches the movies that he makes and then tries to tell him what to do. He was he was told very explicitly on Torah 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 that he does not have final cut that he would not get to uh, make the film that he wanted to make and put it together in a way that he wanted to that he was just to shoot footage and the Hollywood people they were going to do with it as they will like fucking Christ like that's why it upsets me so much now when everyone's like oh man this this dude made a great Korean film we should get him to make American films in the Hollywood system and. Bong Joon-ho wisely says, you know, nah, fuck y'all. Because he, 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 he tried that already with Snowpiercer, and it fucked him up. But he, so, but he was able to make a great comeback. But they keep, it, it keeps happening. 
like, oh man, he Parasite was great. I hope he gets to make a Marvel movie. It's like, fuck off, guys. Fuck, fuck <laughs> off. Um, and that's essentially what happened here. They tried to Kurosawa. They he made great films, and they said, well, let's get him to make a real movie with Hollywood money. And then they tried to tramp all over his style because that's what Hollywood does, and it ruined them. It, it, it upsets me. Uh, but that's 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 what happened those five years, and that's that's how Dodeskinem came to be. Yeah, I believe in the Gersu is all a podcast. Well, uh, I'm about to listen to it again while I get back. I'll, I'll find out. But um, before I, li- I listened to it again, I believe we talked about how uh, it was actually a Russian production company, I believe, that brought Kurosawa to this project to Kurosawa. Something he had always wanted to do, but he knew he mm-hmm. would have to do it in the Russian wilderness. And he didn't really have that opportunity. And once he finally got the opportunity, you could see uh, the final product of the film. You could see like that enthusiasm for filmmaking come through again. Um, mm-hmm. I think as you uh, or going back to what you mentioned about like the crew being very nervous, this was uh, no one that Kurosawa had ever worked with before, and uh, largely these were unknown actors. Uh, A couple of them had been in some of his earlier films, okay. but really, really bit parts. Like no, no, nothing major. Like they really worked with Kurosawa. Yeah, and they were like just slightly above extra. Yeah, like I, I didn't see any of the usual faces. Um, the uh, I don't remember any of their names, but like the the guy that kind of has the groupy face that you always see in the background. And you're like, oh, there he is. Um, but like you can see any of those guys uh, in in this movie, and from what I read. On Wikipedia and from what you're now, with, um, these people are not Kurosawa veterans, so very understandable that they are nervous working with this legend. But uh, I'm glad that uh, maybe just the joy of filmmaking has brought a little mellow to Kurosawa. I wouldn't want to work with some, some crazy auteur director. <laughs> I was actually I was really shocked by how blunt th- that documentary was about these uh, these issues and these trials that he went through because. Japanese PR is always so hyper focused on the positive and whitewash any negativity so that nobody gets their feelings hurt or anything. Japanese PR is always so intensely that that watching that documentary, I was like, oh wow. Um, I'm kind of sad that I didn't watch any of those documentaries on any of the <laughs> other DVDs this this whole time. But I was really really curious about this five year gap, so that's why I took the time. Okay, I'm good now. Okay, Chris, do you have anything? Nothing, nothing else to add now. All right, uh, let's take a uh, short break. So, but before we do that, where can we find both of you online? I am on Twitter at Antonius Pius, and you can find me on the Twitters at Gokufi, um, on Instagram at Frogmoths, and on YouTube with my uh, my YouTube channel. Uh, cups of <laughs> cups of night films. All right, uh, let's take a break. I'll be on the other side with Ink to talk about Hinomaru Sumo. We are back. We have beers, and Ink is with me. Hi, guys. And uh, we are here to talk about Chihaya Furu 3, right? 
Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Jared. <laughs> uh, alas. We will wait for Jared and Chris for that. Uh, this time we are talking about Hinamaru Sumo, uh, which is not a bad sports anime. I think, I think this is a two-streak, two-consecutive streak so far. What was the first one? Um, I don't know, but I feel like the last thing that we talked about wasn't bad. Wait, wasn't the last thing we talked about the horrible jet ski anime? Uh, it has been one podcast since <laughs> okay. the last bit. Uh but no, I, I totally agree. Like, I actually, when this first started airing, and was it when it was simulcasting, I called it the Chihaya Fudu of Sumo. So you weren't far off in saying this is a Chihaya Fudu podcast. Yeah, well, uh, that will come in with some of our listener questions later in the show. But uh, before we get to that, let's just talk about the show in general. Inc., would you like to break it down for us? Sure. We got a uh, named Hinomaru. Uh, he's stacked beyond belief and scarred for no apparent reason um but he wants to become uh yokozuma which is the highest level of uh sumo you can uh attain and he's unfortunately uh being or having such a diminutive stature he's not able to qualify to be a yokozuma no matter how many uh, like grade school or middle school or high school titles he's attained under that uh, banner um, because once you get up into a certain class you have to meet certain restrictions but of course because you know every sports anime is an underdog anime um, he's out to become the strongest so he can overturn their rule by sheer like sheer show of force so to speak and he uh, he ends up looking for uh, a high school with a particular particularly strong sumo uh, club to join, and he ends up a bit sidetracked due to an incident on a train, and uh, discovering this one, like, full-of-heart sumo uh, wrestler at his school training all by himself, because he's the only member, um, and he, he really gets kind of taken with this character, uh, and lots of stuff happens in between, but they end up forming a club, and everything beyond that is pretty much standard uh, sports anime formula. Yeah, very good. Yes. Uh, so we watched the we, we kind of like mar- marathon ish this. Um, like like when we started watching this, it was very similar to the setup of Ahiro no Sora, which I believe premiered the season after this one premiered, uh, where like delinquents take over a particular sports club and then one person comes in and is like hey we should do the sport and everyone's like no we shouldn't do the sport and then everyone eventually comes around and is like uh maybe we should do this uh but yeah. very coincidental yeah i love the fact that like most of this uh most of how they go about getting members isn't really about showing them the sort of valor and the history and the uh the importance of sumo as a, a cultural thing it's now you can beat people really bad with it. <laughs> it's all just <laughs> about taking down the other guy who's higher than they are to like break their ego and say, okay, now you're with me because I beat you. Yeah. So uh, had you ever watched any sumo before this? Yes. Um, I'm the only person in the world who liked Rowdy, uh, Rowdy oh, Sumo yeah, yeah. wrestler Matsutaro. No, Chris liked that as well. It's a great show. It's got a horrible protagonist, but it, I mean, that's mm. kind of the point. It is like a great show. It got a great opening. It did. It did. But uh, no, I, th- I think honestly, you learn more from that show than you do this one. Mm. But um, because that really is focused on the culture of sumo, um, 
But this this one's a lot of fun to watch, and it's engaging as hell. But uh, no IRL? Hmm? No IRL sumo? Mm, no. No, I never made it out to the Las Vegas um, Otakon where Mike Tool actually stepped into the ring. Oh, I uh, forgot that, sumo. that happened. I always went kind of I was very, very sad to miss that. <laughs> I almost suggested him to have come on on this podcast to, you know, provide maybe some of the ins and outs. I don't know how much he actually like looked into sumo at all, but he could definitely attest to some of the ring tension and movements and stuff mm. like that. No, you sure have asked. Well, too late now. Uh, but I wanted to be the star. <laughs> You're the only star in the heart. Aww. Um, but let's see. This show, uh, as you said, is about this scarred, randomly scarred person named Hinomaru, and uh, he kind of is the impetus to everything. But uh, as a like shonen protagonist, I think he was mm, perhaps better than standard. Um, he really gets. Uh, Gets everybody into sumo, and like no one is, no one seems to be a typical sumo wrestler besides him and the club president. I forget mm. his name. Should have looked up everybody's name before I, before I started this, uh, but I never do, and then I regret it. Uh, Shinya Ozeki, I believe. Uh, yeah, Ozeki. Um, I remember. But uh, like I, I appreciate how weird everybody is in this show, just because. <laughs> um, as someone who has not really watched any sumo uh, in real life, like I watched a couple videos uh, after we started watching this about like how much they eat and uh, just a general history of sumo, which I think was only three minutes long or something. So it was extremely general. Um, <laughs> but the way they present them is very like the the delinquent that they were fighting against Yuma. He uh, has a karate background, so he mostly does strikes and then. There is a, a different guy, Hiro Kunisaki, who is, uh, he used to be a wrestling, wrestling champion. He wants to be a MMA fighter, um, so he basically does, like, everything, and it's really weird and crazy. And then there's the really small guy called Mitsuhashi, who is, uh, approximately 50 pounds and 5 feet tall. <laughs> uh, and he is, like, uh, this agile guy that tries to get behind people and always loses because he's, uh, very small. Like, um, the variety of characters and bodies and fighting styles in this, I think, makes it more interesting than if it was just a bunch of, uh, fat guys bunching up again. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, it's, it's kind of, it kind of speaks to how well, how well the anime actually choreographs the fights and the lessons learned as tailored to their individual backgrounds, as you noted. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it really wouldn't be interesting if everybody had the same skill set or lack thereof, and they just all sort of learn the same things at different levels. But really, their own fighting styles are tailored by the captain or by the um, the manager, who is actually also a student, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, he he's a for- the the manager is a former uh, sumo wrestler as well, so he knows the ins and outs, and he knows how how to study people's movements, but. To, to actually develop the characters along with their uh, fighting styles is a really cool thing to see mm-hmm. in, a, in a standard shonen action thing. Yeah, as with uh, uh, as with Agata and Chihaya Furu and his freak Kagata accident that made him not want to do Kagata anymore, uh, Kirihito in uh, this sumo anime had a freak sumo accident. Sumo. Yeah, he also has uh, also has uh, a lung thing, so he, he like can't wrestle for more than 20 seconds otherwise he dies no you're is... supposed to respond to that less straight than you just did 
<laughs> Sorry. But, you know, it's a great MacGuffin because <laughs> the way the way that builds tension down the line and how it kind of, uh, uh, what was it, uh, the level of drama that brings is just really fantastic. It's, 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 it's a, it's a doki doki moment. <laughs> True. Yeah. As with, uh, truly as with Chihai Fru and, uh, stuff like Bamboo Blig, there are five people in team matches and as they only have five people plus the asthmatic manager, um, they need to have every single person, uh, fighting. And at one point the small guy has a much, much larger guy fall on his leg. So he is no longer able to fight, and that is the moment when um, the manager has to step in and fight for them. But uh, can he last long enough? So much drama. Yep. But uh, let's see. What else do we want to talk How do you like the fights? They're very exciting. The what? Oh, the, the fights? fights. They, are, they are very exciting. And uh, it, it's uh, there's a couple of things that I think add to it. It's, uh, it's not like the usual competitive gaming sports anime where you have a lot of commentator... Uh, explaining and very little action it's pretty much commentating on top of the action so everything you see like oh he's trying to do an x and oh he counters by y but now there's a z <laughs> and you know you, you never really see what's happening that's actually overlaid on uh, top of the action and uh it, it really brings home not only what some of these moves are and they all just have these really elaborate uh shonen names like triple dragon streak takedown or something like that um uh, and i'm pretty sure that's not what it's called in sumo but <laughs> and it may be i don't know i don't know much about sumo but i know this is damn fun to watch and uh you know if you're watching if you're watching the fights it's it's like when you're watching chai fudu you're maybe maybe not so much your nails are dug into the arms with this one but you're you're definitely very tense yeah and as uh as most of these people are newcomers into the sport you don't really know what the outcome is going to be either. Like, uh, this this anime actually surprised me at how successful they were uh, from the get go. Um, just because the only there's only two out of the five or three out of the six, but one can only last for 40 seconds or whatever it is. Uh, out of those people that actually have sumo experience, so and like even those two wins are not a given. Um, so. Whenever they're fighting against uh, these people, uh, I forget the name of the regional one, but like Ishiro, I don't know, whatever it is, um, we saw them in a training camp and they pretty much got resoundingly crushed in the training camp. <laughs> and then once they get to the, the real deal, the uh, Inter High tournament, then that is when they step up. And they've learned so much since that time through the training camp, through everything else, uh, that they are able to prevail in that moment. And, like, that was actually surprising to me because, um, like, I don't expect them to win because none of them are very experienced. They're just, like, very innately talented. Yeah, that's something this this uh, this show does that a lot of other sports anime don't. Like, usually sports anime have a, has a pretty crushing loss pretty early on, and then mm -hmm. they sort of rebound from that. Yeah. But... This this team just continually climbs, and I think what really excuses that is the fact of their mixed backgrounds regarding other fighting styles, because other sumo wrestlers are just expecting sumo, so when you throw something else into the mix, kind of throws them off. And there is uh, 
a little later on in the story when the main character's special attack is used too much and suddenly everyone's just familiar with it so they begin to counter it so he needs to do something more mm-hmm. um, it kind of shows that as well like all of a sudden oh okay well we know this now so we can we can work against it uh, yeah but yeah so it kind of explains their rise uh, their quick rise and eventual uh, sort of stalled slower growth mm-hmm yeah, and you mentioned uh, they don't really have a loss uh, in terms of teams, and like I think that's where the character work really comes in with this anime. They have uh, they have a good rapport between each other in uh, teaching each other and uh, going through all these camps and such. That like their failures are outside of when it matters, um, and then when they do finally have uh, any failure at all, it's in the individual tournament between. Um, What's his face? Hinamaru, he's the freaking character, how do I not remember that? And uh, the Tenoji, I Lord, think. The large ponytailed boy? Yeah. Uh, no, not the ponytailed one, the blue haired one. Mm. Um, yeah, in the individual tournament, whoever the blue haired one was, I think it's Tenoji. Uh, but Hinamaru loses to him in the individual tournament, and then, like, that's the moment when they have. They, they as the team, realize that. They're not invincible, uh, and I mean they knew, they knew this before because uh, half of them are beginners. But uh, this is really the tangible evidence that they are not invincible because their best fighter just got defeated. Yeah, it's a nice anything goes moment. Mm-hmm. It allows them to step up in the team moment, which is like that creates more character drama. Um, as with well, I guess we'll just keep doing this. As with Kihaifu, uh Taichi is able to, or like the team is able to rally around. Uh, each other through the Fujisaki match and winning the nationals in the team competition, but then like we blow through the individual competition, which Taichi just destroyed everybody basically, uh, because like that doesn't really matter. We don't care. I mean, we do care about Taichi, but we don't care as much about. Um, we don't care about Taichi. <laughs> we don't care as much about the individual uh, merits of these characters. We care about what they're accomplishing as a team, and that's also what they emphasize here in. I actually think they emphasize it a lot more with this one, because uh, G.I. Fudo, the first season, was uh, very much about single players mm-hmm. uh, and sort of team as a consequence, but season two was a lot more team-centric, but this one is very team-centric from the start, and I think yeah. that speaks to a lot of the heart of Sumo, and if I were to start you know, making character correlations between G.I. Fudo and uh, Hinamaru Sumo, I'd say Ozeki is Oe, uh, because it's he's he's the yep. heart of sumo and he's steeped in tradition. As is Hinamaru, but you know, Ozeki's you know the one building dirt rings and you know maintaining the the the, uh, the stable and uh, yeah, it's kind of awesome. Yeah, and those moments like with Ozeki with the heart of sumo, you get um, a, a a both inward and outward conflict between Yuma and him. Yuma was the delinquent who took over the sumo club for their entire three years, their third years at this point. Um, so this is their last chance. And uh, Yuma just feels like so, so terrible for doing that because when he finally feels that elation of winning and having the team win, then he he said he thinks to himself, like, this is what I took away from Zeki for three years. This is what he didn't get because of what I did. And I like that it doesn't just instantly go away, because there's a moment where he has to ask to be part of the, the sumo club, 
because uh, something's triggered in him. He's you know he was he was beaten one move by mm-hmm. Hinamaru in that that challenge to take back the club. And by the way, how do you get hit in the face fifteen for fifteen minutes straight and not have <laughs> so much as a bloody nose? How do you train your nose? I yeah. want to know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but there, there's a moment where uh, Gojo has to bow and you know sort of prostrate himself before um, Ozeki and ask to be allowed in the club and there's something pure in his uh, apology that strikes him at the moment so he says well I have no choice but to let you in after hearing that mm-hmm. but it's not like the guilt like you said goes away that carries throughout the series uh, and it's it's nicely placed uh, in disparate parts where you wouldn't really expect them to pop up yeah and he feels that same kind of guilt, or uh, a similar kind of guilt, when he returns to his former karate instructor as well, just to try to uh, learn technique more. But like she is someone who kicks him out uh, every time he shows up, every time he uh, reopens the door, and it's only his persistence and like that expression and that sincerity in his voice that allows him to break through. Uh, you know, I didn't really know how likely you might be for the, or as he uh, was introduced as a character and as he joined the sumo club, but like by the end of it, I was cheering for Yuma perhaps more than anybody else just to see this redemption go through. And he's got that awful sister. <laughs> that has and the The anime has that awful brother-sister love thing, mm-hmm. although it's more sister-brother. Yeah. But there's also, like, I love the fact that, uh, and her, her, the sister's name is Reina. I believe uh, so. Yeah, and uh, she she comes around on sumo too, and it takes a good long time. It's not an instant switch, but you see the gradual astonishment, and finally her sort of expressing disgust with herself of, oh no, do I really like this? <laughs> and I kind I kind of enjoyed that. Oh yeah, I forgot completely that Reina is also the student council president. Mm-hmm. It just like is so irrelevant so quickly that it went completely out of my head. Yeah, the the only point that's actually relevant is when she like sort of barges her way into be the ref in that initial match yeah. between her brother and or not her brother, Hinamaru uh, uh, and that someone. Oh, Chihiro. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where she planned to make a false call and yeah. uh, didn't get the chance to basically. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then and she's just basically tagging along with Big Bro. Yeah. Uh, though I'm glad. Uh, in in the end, it could not go the brother route because, like mm-hmm. anime, you never know. Uh, I mean, you mostly know. <laughs> true, but uh, it seems and uh, well, if you want to know a spoiler, I think we've laid down enough spoilers already. <laughs> right. It seems as if uh, it is not going that direction. Thankfully, Hinamaru is only five two. What a shrimp! No, very important in this uh, in this whole discussion of Hinamaru's size. You have to be a certain uh, height to be able to be a professional sumo player, sumo wrestler, sumo person. Uh, yeah, 167 centimeters, which is 5'6", he is 5'2", 157 centimeters. Um, but the alternative way to get through that is to uh, become the... Mm, crap, what is it called? Uh, the Yokozuna of uh, high school sumo wrestling, at which point you are allowed into professional sumo as an exception, um, or as because you don't have to take the physical exam, which uh, takes your height. The winning the high school thing does not take your height. That is his only way in. Which kind of bumps up the immediacy and the the necessity of his need to win that match. 
Mm-hmm. Like he needs it more than anybody else, except for maybe the one dude who's the son of the Yokozuna. Yep. Yeah. And they they add some extra drama with uh, Ozaki and Yuma being third years. This is their last chance. This is their only chance as the entire team to win all mm-hmm. of this. Um, but at the end, we are not given the resolution of this, but he is given the ultimatum of be going pro or uh, continuing high school. And that's not like going pro and continuing high school, I guess. Yeah, be one or the other. I hope there's what a second you, season. Yeah, me too. I was I was thinking when you had me on to uh, podcast about this, I was I was looking back and I was like, oh, yeah, it was only 24 episodes, so it was two cores for that first season. Yep. And I was like, oh, shit. Is there going to be a second season? Because it seems like, like, I know it wasn't that long ago, but given how many shows drop a season, it seems like this dropped a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, we wanted to watch it when it first dropped. 2018, goodness. Yeah. I thought it was way more recent than that. Um, yeah, but yeah, we wanted to watch it when it first came out, and we just it kind of just dropped off of our radar, but now that we are stuck inside forever, we had some extra time. <laughs> So we got up with it. And there's only 28 volumes of the manga. So, uh... It's still going? No, it finished. Yeah, just finished. Um, last year. Oh my god. I guess now would be the time. Yeah. Uh, so I hope there's more There's more anime or that we get the manga. It seems to be what would be a Viz property, so maybe... One. How do you feel about its stopping point? I really like stopping, actually. Um, this is the, the entire arc that we are going through. The uh, redemption arc for Yuma, the uh, first quote-unquote tournament arc. I don't know why quote-unquote. It is tournament arc. Um, the tournament arc for Ozaki and Yuma, and uh, as I said earlier, they're only time together. So seeing this culminate there was just immensely satisfying. And like, Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I want a second season, but I want next second season to focus on then either the... Uh, Hinamaru as a second year, or Hinamaru as a... Ooh, I'd like to see Hinamaru as a pro. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was thinking about it just as a more immediate progression, but if they jump ahead a little bit, that would also be cool. Yeah. So did you did you watch the bumpers, or did you Oh, yes, skip? of course. Because this is one of the few... Uh, you have this lovingly you know, character-driven, uh, action-centric uh, sports anime, but if you watch through the credits, uh, there's always a pretty great comedic bumper <laughs> and uh yeah yeah i loved all of those like there is so funny. And, any, and anyone with the cat is uh just gold <laughs> yeah the cat's awesome and i did like how they uh kind of sort of incorporated one of them into the series proper um oh right with the nudity and uh, no it i haven't uh, i only watched the first rewatched the first four episodes to remember kind of the flavor of it before okay. uh no, Which the, one did they reuse? The one I'm thinking of, not reuse, uh, uh, you will mm. Um The one I'm thinking of is when the only two-part bumper, where uh, Hinamaru walks in on Reina and uh, the other one, uh, Sumo Wrestling. Yes. Um, uh, Kizuko Hori. Uh, she's the other manager of the Sumo Club who was uh, being molested on a train because men are gross. Um, and then Hinamaru uh, intervened while he was wearing his sumo belt on the train, so he was also kind of... Uh, but anyway... It's, it's not weird to be an exhibitionist. <laughs> Especially yeah. when you're going to try and find an exhibition. True. Uh, well, she joins the sumo club as well as manager, um, and those two eventually say, we should sumo? 
uh, and do, and the end result is, of course, Hinamaru sees up both of their skirts. Um, this eventually leads to Hinamaru uh, comedically saying, uh, I haven't been able to get this out of my mind. You need to do sumo better and tries to train them. <laughs> <laughs> that line was so well delivered in time. <laughs> yes. But uh, the real push of that is that Reina finally starts to discover that maybe she is not in love with her brother, which, thank God, uh, <laughs> she may in love, be in love instead with Himaru. Hinomaru, and that is uh, further driven by like their conversation in the hallway right before their final bout. I believe it's their final bout. It's through the semi-final or final bout. Um, and she sees the uh, broadness of his shoulders, I don't know, and uh, starts to like him more. I think it's kind of a shame she really doesn't have much more character, independent character development, mm-hmm. because she's just this kind of a stock character as the class president, like yep. we said, very quickly forgotten. And then she's just very much this antagonistic tag-along yeah. for most of the show. She's um, kind of that person that's like, I don't understand this thing. Can you- mm, yeah, she's very much a, a device to get information to the audience. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like they the show actually kind of uses that to its advantage by having... Um, Hinomaru kind of see her for what she can do and say you know, oh hey, I'm going to talk to you on a peer-to-peer level and I I have this feeling like she really appreciates that deeper Mm -hmm. than anything she's uh, kind of experienced before in terms of uh, interpersonal relationships so it it gives it uh, a little more meaning than your standard oh hey, come join our club Yeah, Hinomaru is kind of basic so he he just talks to everyone pretty much as a peer-to-peer level I think that's uh, a, a good thing. Uh, but do you have anything else? Should we get to question? Oh, I've got uh, got a lot, actually. All right, well, just uh, read off your notes. <laughs> From one to five billion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, what did you think about the art style? Oh, I loved it. Um, I liked... it's kind of a throwback to an older style. Yeah, exactly. I liked, uh, if I recall, it had a bit of thicker lines to it. And I liked how that uh, really emphasized like the builds in their bodies. Mm. Yeah, it's got like if if you've seen Ushio and Tora, um, nope. very much the same kind of art style. At least I, I remember. So I didn't watch a lot of it, but it had that sort of you know older aesthetic. Yeah. Um, and it's also not afraid to break and just sort of go entirely different ways. Like I I, I had like I said I only rewatched the first four episodes for this podcast, but. Um, in the first episode, it changes to like black and white sketches with this really, like you said, thick lines. Uh, but it's this really um, forceful, uh, aggressive motion, and it's gorgeous. It's just like charcoal and paper, but whew, that that really does a number. Uh, but most of the time, it's just this very clean uh, type of lines. If you're in a in a school setting, and it changes to the sort of more husky, lined, deeper colors when you go into matches. Uh, so I, I really liked how it played with its art style a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Oh, I did want to talk about, like, this show very much uses, at least in the first uh, core, during that whole we got to get the band together, uh, sort of uses that fights being this uh, bonding thing between men. Oh, I hate you. I hate you. We fight. Now we're best friends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I've seen that. It's a real thing. It doesn't always work like that. 
but that's certainly how almost every single person comes into this club. Uh, and I, I was wondering if this isn't like the opposite of to- toxic masculinity because um, the strength admired in defeat spurs this admiration of the other person, but that admiration is also mirrored in sort of the purity of the individual because it's usually people losing to uh, Hinamaru. And he's, you know, this very soul of the sport uh, player. Uh, he's driven by fate to, you know, by saving the person on the train, like you said. Um, and that's how we're introduced to him. So, you know, obviously hero material. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I would like to think of this as the opposite of toxic masculinity, but I may be off there. Uh, no, I mean, I would go, I would go aboard go along with uh, with that take as well, especially with someone like Yuma, who was the the person that was like supposedly embodying that uh, ideal, and then he got punched in the face once, and now he's just completely reformed. Mm. He'd been healed! Yep. Exactly. Oh, speaking of uh, hits, I did... Uh, I think one of the other things that makes the matches uh, a lot of fun and sort of engaging uh, is the sound. Um, all the slaps. Hmm. The slaps are very prevalent, very sh- sharp, and depending on how many and how frequent uh, the the fieriness and the frequency, uh, the sh- scuffing of feet in the dirt, uh, it all really places you in that ring audibly. And it was something else I really liked about the series. Yep. I think that's about it for me. Oh, wait, the OP and ED. Oh. We didn't talk about the naked. Well, uh... <laughs> I was going to use it as a song, so it was just implied. Man, I I, I got to say the <clears throat> I love the first ED, uh, the first ending first, because uh, it's nothing but beefy, sweaty men, fire, swords, grunting, and this obnoxious J rap. <laughs> um, that's amazing in combination. I do not remember at all. Uh, I think all of the music cues in this anime were taken up uh, by "Be the Naked" in my brain. <laughs> Yeah, music really isn't a huge part of the series all throughout. Yeah, but uh, that that's that that song. Uh, it's Hizuru Basho by uh, Omedetai Atama de Naniori. Guessing that's how you pronounce that. Um, that that stole my heart. I I, I I could listen to that endlessly. I don't think I skipped that once. Well, I never skip. I just have poor retention. <laughs> so questions. All right, question. Uh, my phone again from Izangra. Who's she? Uh, I don't know. New person? Hmm. What do you think of the assorted body types, especially with four ripped guys, one quote typical unquote end quote sumo body, and one scrawny dude who later becomes sort of rip on the main team? IMO, I thought there were too many built guys, but then again, I don't know anything about sumo. Um, I mean, the way they set them up is like everyone else was a wrestler or a mixed martial artist wannabe or, mm-hmm. you know, some, some form of very physically prowessed person. So I wasn't surprised by the ripness. Um, I, I was a little surprised at uh, Hinamaru because uh, he, you know, you always picture a sumo wrestler as uh, a large, fluffy guy, um, and you know, there's a lot of strength underneath that fluff, but it's certainly mm-hmm. fluff. Yep. Um, and when he's he he first tosses his jacket to the wind, and you see the the rippling abs and whatever else, um, you're just like, oh shit. It's just a little stacked brick house there. Um, uh, the, as for the, like the scrawny, I think they did a good job with like bringing in a lot of body types to it, and yeah. especially seeing as like that one scrawny kid had never done a sport in his life besides flute. 
<laughs> yeah. As I mentioned before, I think it does. Uh, I agree. I think it does a really good job with uh, all the varying body types and incorporating those body types into the way they fight. Mm. Because like if the small gig was trying to do what Kinomaru did or what Ozaki did, it just would not be believable at all. But he like goes off uh, in a completely perpendicular direction. <laughs> Question two from Izonger also. Can you find yourself chanting, be the naked, be the naked at inappropriate times? I mean, even before I watched this anime, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't. <laughs> Weirdo. Uh, yeah. From, uh, Final Fury K. Um, he just says, it is a hell of a show. I agree. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, from Space of Time, what poetry do you find in Super? You know, there's poetry in everything, and like I, th- like I think we discussed before, it's the way they choreograph the, the matches to their particular skills and uh, growth. I think that's the real poetry of it. It's just mm-hmm. the development. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This will roll into the second question, but does this make you want to try? Are you going to do a sumo slash keijo match with Vinny at Anime Next? No, though. I, I you know, once, once you can't grapple in keijo. It's against the rules. True. Unless you, unless you have breasts, because then you can, you know, use those. Oh, right. Um, of course. How could I forget? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, so no, no, I have no uh, sumo ambitions whatsoever. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what did you learn about sumo? Oh wait, you don't get away with not answering that question. What? <laughs> you gonna try? No, it does not make one try sumo. Because uh, we you were also wondering, what did I learn about sumo? Yeah. Uh, I guess I mean if that height rule in the the high school thing is true, I mean I guess I learned that. True. Um, but uh, aside from that, not much. Like I said, uh, I learned a lot more from Rowdy, re- sumo wrestler Mautsutaro. Yeah, a lot of this show assumes that you know about sumo, and the things that you don't know, you will just pick up from context clues. Mm. Which is nice. I mean, it yeah. doesn't slam you over the head with a lot. Right. I do appreciate that. Uh, but uh, going back to the previous few questions, because you don't know much, uh, or because you don't learn much, uh I couldn't really tell you what poetry I find in sumo, and I also couldn't tell you uh, whether this truly would make me want to try sumo, but I assume the answer would still be no. Uh, all right, so fourth question from a table time. Do you have any expectations going into this? Uh, well, you answer first, because uh, this is actually a rewatch for me. Uh, my only expectations were based off of you and I think maybe a couple other people who said it was good. So... Um, I basically wanted to be entertained by a sumo sports anime, and I think it clearly exceeded that. Yeah, when I started watching, I don't think I knew what to expect, except I had thoroughly enjoyed Matsutaro, so here was another wrestling anime, or a sumo anime, and I was like, okay, well, we'll see what flavor this is, and totally different flavor, yeah. um, but uh, I really ended up loving it. Loving it. Yeah. And I, I did not know... Um, Funimation actually picked this up and released it on uh, uh, Blu-ray and DVD. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, last question. What was the most surprising thing about this show? How much I really enjoyed just watching sweaty, rippled men in the ring. I, I would not have expected that. True. Uh, I think what I was really surprised about was, like, the amount of uh, character stuff that was in this. Um, not just, well basically only with Yuma. Um, Hinamaru doesn't really change that much. Uh, he learns new techniques and such, 
but in terms of his character, he always just wants to be the best in sumo, and that doesn't really change, and there's no, no really underlying change in anything else. But Yuma as a character was uh, completely 180 from what we saw episode 1 to episode 24, how many there are in this. Agree. I do not I have the Yuma Redemption arc. I would have to ask, uh, if that's our last question, I have one more for you. That is. What would you think would be the harder sell in modern times, Karuta or Sumo? In terms of a uh, Japanese audience? Uh, in terms of, uh, well, yeah, in Japan. Um, with, you know, real live youth, not foreign anime or anything. Just, <laughs> you know, would it be harder to get, get Karuta members or harder to get Sumo me- members given the target audiences? Because uh, both are, like, classic culture. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really kind of seen as you know nerdy or not not uh, not popularized. Yeah, I think my answer would be they would be it would be equally hard, but in very different ways. Obviously, Karuta <laughs> once you see it in person is this daunting sport where you have to memorize just what seems like an impossible amount of information. Um, and sumo is just something where. If you don't see yourself as having the body type, and most people do not have that body type, you're just not going to try at all. Fair. I would. Uh, I would say. I would actually say karata, because sumo preaches to already preaches to an athletic crowd. Hmm. So people would be sort of more inclined to go towards that if they witnessed uh, some of the matches. Like the show actually does do a good deal of showing, um, but uh, with karata. Like you said, it's da- it's a daunting amount of information and time um, for something that it's yeah just so obscure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, that is all I have on Hinamaru Sumo. Do you have any closing thoughts on the show? Nope. Watch it. It's a fun show. And uh, if you, I, I did not watch the dub, so there is an English dub uh, if you want to check that out. Yep. I also can watch the dub because I'm not allowed to watch dubs. In. <laughs> Why are you not allowed to watch dubs anymore? Dana doesn't like dubs. <laughs> Go Dana. <laughs> but, uh, let's close this thing out. Where can we find you on the internet, Inc.? Well, on the odds that this is posted before Saturday... <laughs> uh, no. This is, this is going to be the May episode. Uh, you can find me possibly on the uh, rebroadcast of uh, Anime Lockdown Con, which is a, a virtual con that was held uh, the weekend of... May 2nd, um, I did my uh, But I Hate Sports anime panel, which, Corey, you loved, right? Uh, yes, it was great. All right. Uh, <laughs> you can also find me over at Anagamers. I co-host the Old Talking No Radio podcast with Jared, uh, and I'm behind the scenes as a contributing editor uh, there. Some back issues of Old, Ta- uh, Old Talker USA magazine and uh, some older uh, posts on Fandom Post. And I think that's about it right now. All right. You can find me on Twitter at CompassionateK. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Taiku Podcast. That is T-A-I-I-K-U. And you can find all of our episodes over at TaikuPodcast.com, uh, where Inc. is our official bad anime, bad sports anime. Thank you for having me on for talk about non-bad sports anime. Yes, we are always glad to have you on for the bad ones or not. What was our next bad one? What was that one, one called? Oh, the, the, the rock climbing anime? Yeah. I'm just going to call it rock climbing, climbing anime. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so am I. But um, we hope to have you on for this. Oh, I'm going to make you watch that. <laughs> <laughs> Take it up, 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 take it up
The day they invent drunk, you know, drunk detection technology, like <laughs> I'm gonna have to seriously stop doing some of what I'm doing. <laughs> there have been days I've walked into work going, "Oh, I'm still wasted from last night. I should have eaten something." <laughs> Let me hop on this industrial truck. Oh, <laughs> you know, I'll let you know if I use it and then get you oh, beforehand. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, feel free. <laughs> I'm not editing, so I have no cares in the world. Uh, true. The joys of not editing. Mm-hmm. Guesting is the best podcasting. It is.